everyone, and welcome back to Inside College Admissions, a SCORE podcast. We're excited for you to join us today for another conversation in our Deans of Admissions series. You'll hear from our guests about the fall semester during a pandemic, the admissions process, how schools are adapting, suggestions and advice for families, and much more. Our strategic advisor, Peter Van Buskirk, will guide us through the conversation today with our special guest. Now over to Peter for today's interview. Welcome to Inside College Admission, conversations with admission leaders about matters affecting the college-going process. My name is Peter Van Buskirk. Earlier this year, I was able to chat with 20 deans of admission about the challenges posed to their institutions by the emerging coronavirus. Today, I'm pleased that Jim Bach, who is the Vice President and Dean of Admission at Swarthmore College, as well as a good friend, has been able to break away from his credential review process to update us on college admission in the era of COVID-19. So welcome, Jim. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. Well, it's, it's always good to talk with you about matters admission. Uh, last time we chatted, it seems like it was years ago, but probably what, late, late March, early May? What's happened in your life since then? Right. Uh, essentially, similar to what it was six months ago when we spoke, but, but virtually everything changed. Uh, <laughs> we are now 100% virtual, just all recruitment, all access. I was just thinking and, and preparing for this interview, realizing that we have not had a visitor on campus since the middle of March. And so as we look to release our early decision letters today, it's pretty remarkable that we actually have applications. We've read them. We've reviewed them. We are releasing decisions later this evening, and it's pretty remarkable what has changed. In fact, I can't think of anything that didn't change other than that we still admit students, we still recruit students, but how we go about that has changed pretty remarkably. How does that, how does that feel to reflect back and know we haven't had anybody on campus? I mean, it, you've got a ghost town in some ways. No, it's true. We've had students on campus. Uh, obviously, they in, enrolled, or maybe not obviously, but we were able to have first years and sophomores on campus, but no mm-hmm. outside visitors. Mm-hmm. And I will say it's a little bit eerie and, and strange uh, not to be able to see and connect with both our students, staff, colleagues, and, and prospective visitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see hundreds, if not thousands, of families come through, uh, obviously, in the spring and definitely during the summer. And so it was really quiet. The campus of Swarthmore is an arboretum, so we have a lot of visitors to campus that are not affiliated with the college or looking to be accepted, but just to enjoy the grounds. And even it was closed off to outside visitors as well. So that has been a little bit strange, though a really nice place to be educated for those who were allowed on this fall. I realize we're still early in the actual admission process, but how do you see things beginning to develop in terms of applications, and I believe you've got an early decision program as well. Are the numbers measuring up to your expectations, uh, more or less? Right. We try not to have too many expectations because mm-hmm. we knew students couldn't visit. For us, we have an early decision program, which is binding. Some schools have early action. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes, I believe it's difficult to make a first choice college decision, particularly if it's binding if you've not visited. Now, again, we still see international students apply, most of whom have not been to the U.S., much less the Swarthmore campus. So we were pretty open to seeing a drop in numbers, maybe equal numbers, slightly higher numbers. We actually did see an increase. And what surprised us a little bit was that the largest increase came from international students. Uh, Now, we have a November 15th deadline, not a November 1 deadline. And I don't, there's no science to this, and I can't prove this yet, but I'm not, I'm calling it the potential Biden effect or Biden-Harris effect that 
looking forward, there may be an opportunity for international students to, to come to the US and have maybe fewer restrictions in terms of visa. Now, COVID is a completely different issue in terms of health and safety and people just being able to travel around. But I think once folks saw where things might be headed, it might have given them an opportunity uh, to, to apply. So we've actually seen as many prospective students. Again, we've done a lot more email campaigns like most schools, but students are responding to those. I will say things dropped off through the fall. So people were, I don't know if I will use the word excited, but they were willing to engage with us virtually through a high school visit or a panel. But as you go through the semester, all of us felt the Zoom fatigue, those in class, those of us in admissions, those high school students. So the numbers started to dwindle off a little bit. And we heard that from counselors. It's not that there's a lack of interest, they're just doing other things. And if they can get that free hour back, they may not show up for your visit, which was fine with us. And so it was wonderful to engage those students because they were often much more intimate settings with two or three students versus eight to 10. We would still have 30, 45 minutes with them like a traditional high school visit, but we saw that narrow a little bit. But we are seeing, and what I'm hearing is that applications many places, well, the consistency is the inconsistency. Some are down, some are, are moderately even or up a little bit like us, and some are seeing significant increases because I think people are saying, well, I'm not sure where I might land, and if, particularly if it's an early action school and not a binding program, then well, let me make this my first choice school. And last point I'll make about that, which we might talk about is, and many schools are test optional. So since I don't need tests, why don't I just throw out that extra application or go for that reach school? Sure. It, it's interesting too, that the psychology that one presumes is associated with college going has changed over 10 months. I would imagine that probably in March, April, May, there was great consternation, fear about the unknown, and, and people were probably pulling back their wings in terms of being willing to venture out. And you probably even had some concern about how that would be manifest in your current freshman class. But now I think folks are ready to get going. It's uh, time to break out and go to college. That's right. And I think they are tired of maybe being in their bedroom at home or because, <laughs> again, that's the other issue is some high schools have opened, some have closed, some have uh, moved from remote to virtual to hybrid and back. So, again, uh, just my own son's high school uh, last night got shut down uh, for, for the remainder of the week. So it started virtual, then it went hybrid. Now it's back to virtual. So I think students who are juniors and seniors in the process are itching to go to college in whatever form that may take uh, looking forward. What are you sensing from the admission perspective on this bouncing around that kids have had to deal with? And there really hasn't been any real consistency in terms of classroom instruction since early March through the present. And it's got to have a, an impact on a young person's ability to stay focused and, and, and perform at a high level. And of course, you're having to make fine distinctions between high achievers. How, how do you go about making those discernments? Sure. No, it's a great question. And I think they're definitely, and we're hearing it from counselors, we're reading it in the essays, there's just increased anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if this process wasn't anxiety producing enough pre-pandemic, much less post-pandemic, while we're living it, everyone's experiencing it a different way, but there's not a person that has not been impacted in some way by this. Mm -hmm. I will say though, as we lean into holistic admissions, which many of our peers do, is that we had always looked at trends, if you will. So we do have first year grades, sophomore grades, we have the first semester of junior year, and we do have spring semester junior year, but in a new form. 
Was it they locked in the grade at whatever you had on March 15th? Was it pass fail? Again, and, and what has been really heartening is seeing how schools, regardless of, of background, whether it's public, private, parochial, have done a really good job filling in that extra box on the forms for secondary school reports saying, this is how our school was impacted. Mm. So you sort of get a sense of how the community was impacted. And then obviously the individual recommendations from teachers, counselors, and even students self-describing how it impacted them from an academic standpoint. I was able to take these courses or I stuck with my APs but didn't take the 45-minute exams. So we're seeing students utilize that, that extra question to talk about it. It's completely optional. Some fill it out, some don't. Some have said, you know what, I have a lot of privilege. I haven't been that impacted. Others have said, yes, we've lost family members. I mean, these, these stories are, are really devastating. And so it, it is allowing us that window into those students. And so the holistic review has really helped us continue to make good decisions with or without test scores. Well, speaking of test scores, this is your first foray into a test option? Correct. Uh, what do you think? Uh, now you're a couple of months into credential review. Do you miss them? Do you miss the test? No, it's a great question. In fact, uh, we literally just coming off decision making this past week. So it's, it's live and, and still processing, but I will say so far so good. And, and what I mean by that is we looked or heard nationally, both from College Board and ACT, that based on the numbers, there could be upwards of 50% or more of students who were eligible to sit for a test that might not have one to submit to a college. That is significant, right? When half the population has no access. So again, that's why a lot of colleges moved to the test optional option. In our early decision pool, and again, I'm still finalizing numbers, but we're in that 42 to 48% of, of application submitters did not submit a test. Hmm. And I will tell you right now, it looks like roughly, and again, well, I will share after tomorrow because decisions haven't been released yet, but let's just say uh, the number of admitted students, the percentage without scores is comparable, if not slightly higher. Mm -hmm. And so that tells me that we're making decisions independent of those scores. And so it'll be really interesting as we move forward. We chose a two-year optional pilot I know some schools are saying, well, we, we went for the one year because of COVID, because of the challenge, because of, of health and safety. But now counselors and juniors are saying, but we want to sign up now. You, you need to tell us what next year is going to look like. So I know a lot of colleges are, are talking now because they need to release their decision for the following year this spring. So we opted for the two year. We said, you know what, let's take a year's worth of data. We were concerned that this might not be one year or two and would, it would impact at least two classes particularly those precocious sophomores and juniors who take the PSAT early or the SAT early. And many of them uh, are not getting a test right now because seats that were, that remained available often and appropriately went to seniors. Mm -hmm. And so, or if a school, um, and as all of them did, uh, practiced physically distanced um, and safe health practices, they often had to disinvite students that weren't members of that high school. So again, we are seeing continued test cancellations, those who don't have access to the test. And so far, it is not impacting decisions because of the holistic review, where we can look at the rigor of the curriculum, the choice of courses, but also build in the context of what access did they have during the spring? Sure. What access do they have now as seniors? So I will tell you, it was much harder to get first quarter grades or first quarter progress for our early decision candidates. Again, we don't require mid-year grades for early candidates because the semester's not over, but we do want a progress report. 
Um, we received all those, but those were coming in a little bit slower and we just were flexible with that um, with counselors. So again, when a student applied, they still had several days or weeks to complete the application. And so most of my colleagues that I've talked with across the country are just being flexible. And, and in fact, many schools have extended their regular decision deadlines for three or four days or a week because of the wildfires, because of COVID. So um, I'm heartened by the college's response and I mean, meaning all colleges, not just Swarthmore, but, but working with counselors and students uh, where they are. But bottom line right now, no direct impact, but we'll see. Again, early decision is not our second round, nor is it regular decision, but our pool right now is, is trending similar to the national demographic of only about um, up to half of students submitting a test score with their application. It begs the question of this testing optional situation. Was it really a great risk to go that direction? The reason I ask that is that my guess is that, that Swarthmore and others across the country have done validity studies on a fairly regular basis to look at factors that predict success. Did you feel like you were taking a great leap or just a little leap into the test option? I thought it was more of a little leap because of who we attract, right? So regardless of test score, these were probably top students in their school, wherever they're coming from. Not everyone, of course, again, you know, we, we welcome all applications from all backgrounds, all types of high schools. If you look at the percentage of our students that, that report a rank that are in the top five, 10%, again, that has stayed steady, right? So the, the, we're still getting that information or we're not. Again, a lot of schools pulled back on ranks. So we saw fewer ranks because again, how do you rank pass fail? Uh, and so we, we work with those schools in that regard, though we do find validity, but it's, it's valid in certain areas. So we do, we, we are a traditional liberal arts college, but we are liberal arts and engineering. So guess what? Math matters for prospective engineers. And so it was always an optional test to begin with. And so we would get that math test, but you can also see it in the curriculum, how far had they achieved in math and even our engineering department was letting us know that there's not a hard and fast requirement because students can start from ground zero and, and start with no background in engineering and major in engineering within four years. So to your point, yeah, I, I think that will be part of our discussion moving forward. How do those students do once on campus? And is it something, uh, we will definitely revisit it, but I'm glad that we have two years to make that decision. Well, and, and the two years gives you an opportunity also to see what the performance levels have been of the students who've come in with us. And I mean, years and years ago, it's probably now 35 years ago when I was at Franklin and Marshall, we went test option and it was an experiment, but it didn't last long as an experiment. <laughs> it became a permanent fixture in the, in, the, in the operation. Did you ever encounter families that are still a little incredulous about the test option? They'll say, well, isn't this sort of a trick, a way to kind of make inferences about our scores? If I, if I don't send my score in, won't you assume that the scores were low? Right. No, I, I think we're still seeing that. And I still think uh, colleges still need to do a, a good job of, of, of laying some of those fears. But again, time will tell in terms of how colleges behave in rendering decisions throughout the course of the year. So again, it's still a little bit early. What I will say, though, is at least based on our early numbers, we wouldn't get the class we wanted if we only looked at scores, right? So again, if you have them and you're comfortable with them, submit them. If you don't, don't. What I couldn't tell you before is what would the demographic look like? Well, now that, I, that I'm seeing half that don't have scores, I'm not going to cut my pool in half and say, well, I'm really only going to give preference to those who submitted scores. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, we, we don't assume why you have them or don't have them uh, because it's not on the application. We also redact. So they have the option now. I want to use my SAT or ACT, or I don't want to use either one. 
we actually have our administrative assistants go through the files before we even read them to redact scores in the application. So we've never had to do that, but that is a, that is a time labor intensive mm -hmm. endeavor and we're doing that. So we redacted all the scores for students. And so because oftentimes teachers, counselors may just list it in the narrative. And so we redacted when students said, we don't want it there. Um, and so we really are leaning into that and, and taking it seriously and not just saying wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, we saw the score, but we won't pretend like we didn't see it. We actually redact the scores before we read the file. There's a lot of talk right now about how the college access has been, especially for students who are marginalized, has, has been impacted by COVID. And I know that, that Swarthmore has a long history of, of meaningful outreach. How has this particular circumstance that we're in right now affected your ability to maintain contact with students who might otherwise be marginalized in the process? No, it's a great, great question. And again, early returns, it, 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 there's pros and cons and, and things that have gone well, things that have gone less well. So for example, in setting up virtual high school visits. We continue to reach out to high schools, community-based organizations. I will speak for myself, can't speak for the whole team or the profession, but it was harder to connect with those CBOs to find the time because they were on the ground finding those students, connecting with those students who weren't showing up for the after-school program because they couldn't get there. And so, you know, schools with resources were quick to respond and say, yeah, we'll have that visit. So we didn't change the way we were outreaching, but the responses did shift. We also increased email campaigns and we can still reach them virtually through email. We did have a fly-in program, all virtual for low-income underrepresented students. Usually that's a, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday program. This year it was a Sunday through a Thursday. So it was like a five-day program, not all day, every day, but like two to three hours a night. We actually invited more students than we could ever accommodate because we didn't have to host them. We didn't have to feed them. Right. We had the highest number this year apply early decision versus those who, who had participated in person, maybe because of the sense of community. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. So there are definitely things that we will continue, things that may shift back as, as you know, if things ever normalize or what becomes the new normal moving forward. And for us and schools like us, the commitment to need blind admissions, meeting full determined need, we're still seeing those folks in our pool. So we do track the, the headlines and we are seeing that fewer um, FAFSA completions, fewer students starting a common application based on background, uh, race, and income. But we're still finding in they're still showing up in our pool. Again, for early, I won't know regular until um, till well after January. And again, it could dry up at, at any minute. These could just be people who were connected and resourced, meaning connected with a community-based organization. But we know the struggles are real and, and that's an issue nationwide. And we just need to redouble our efforts to make sure they stay in our pool are accepted and then have a choice to matriculate or not or choose another option. How important has it been for your team to have a focused outreach to those students who may need assistance? And I'm thinking now there are, there are a lot of families approaching the process this year who in 2019 probably felt fairly comfortable financially and then <laughs> 2020 just turned their world inside out and, and upside down. So we encourage them to get the FAFSA, fill out the FAFSA and they're saying, but the FAFSA wants my 2019, that's not real anymore. How do you work with that family now? No, it's a great question. In fact, one thing we did, we partnered with peers. So a group that was founded prior to this, but it sort of morphed into what we're calling sixcolleges.org. Mm -hmm. And so it's Amherst, Bowdoin, Carleton, Pomona, Swarthmore, and Williams Colleges. And we said, let's set aside our, you know, competitive, you know, rivalries. Again, we're still competitors and, and you know, at least athletically in other ways and academically, but let's set all that aside and sort of travel together. So we've, we've done group travel in the past, but not as the six. 
And instead of sharing information about our colleges, which we felt families could find through taking a tour or an interview or other ways or, or through online resources, we talked about applying in the time of a pandemic. Mm. What does financial need in the time of a pandemic? How do we lean into diversity, equity, inclusion in this time of systemic racism and, and social injustice? And so there are so many things happening in our culture, in our society. What still remains the value of a residential liberal arts education in a pandemic? And, and, and what do we have in common and how we, can we work collectively to share information so that students can make the most informed choice? So rather than doing that as one college, we did it as six. So over two sessions, we connected with a thousand counselors who could ask all their questions about test optional or FAFSA completion or financial aid. And uh, far more families could see. And when you signed up for sixcolleges.org, you were signing up for six colleges. So you got more information, but it wasn't about, oh, these are our names or your names or your prospects. These are everyone. We just want to give them one option, which is residential liberal arts education. But let's address the issues you asked about, Peter. How are we going to afford financial aid? What is a net price calculator? What is my intuition? Many of us work to uh, increase fee waiver access. So at Swarthmore, we, we've had for a couple of years SWAT pass, where it's a series of six or seven questions, and within 24 hours, you either qualify for a fee waiver or do not. And, and so again, removing those barriers, not making the process less rigorous, but removing artificial barriers so that students can apply, be accepted, and matriculate. And I, I think that's, that's wonderful because what you're really presenting there is a community service rather than a, a marketing. It's an implicit marketing tool, but, but you're really trying to help people make good decisions. Let's talk again about your applicants. Swarthmore's a reputation among the elite liberal arts institutions in the country, but also with a rather distinct Quaker background. And I think that the families that, that, that get to know Swarthmore understand that it's not like most other places. How does that affect the way you, you look at candidates? Or maybe I, I should ask it with a, a sharper point. When, when you're looking at really, really good students, and, and you've got a ton of them, what, what are the tipping point factors tending to be uh, when, when you meet them? Sure. So we're looking for less, you know, a list of activities, or I've joined 20 clubs, started number 21. So it's not just additive. It's what has been your commitment to any two or three things. Mm -hmm. So are you a poet who started the magazine, um, but then you invited other people in? It's okay that you're an activist, but are you looking to build bridges versus burning bridges necessarily, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a fine line, so we welcome it, but how are we solving those problems creatively, intellectually, leaning into the discomfort, coming to a small campus where you will meet people not like you, that don't look like you, that there are lots of different languages, so it's hard to hide at a Swarthmore. So oftentimes, you know, we'll read a teacher recommendation and the teacher will say, you know, the student doesn't speak much, but when she does, it's the most insightful comment in the room. Mm -hmm. So again, it's okay to be an introvert, right? But it's, it's that intellectual uh, depth that we're seeking across disciplines and across activities and interests. So again, even in test optional times, you can see a student who maybe said, listen, I wasn't feeling really good about my scores, but I got my community together to do a tutoring program. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it's how did they take advantage of, of their, their limited opportunities or more opportunities. We also look at also family responsibility. So again, 
how are they giving back, not just to the high school, but to the community. We recognize a lot of that was interrupted this year. So again, it's, it's how they, they write about it. It's not the story per se, because a lot of students can write a, a really good descriptive story. It's really more the analysis and the analytical thinking that many 16 and 17 year olds are quite engaged in and they may not even recognize it. So we see it in the teacher recommendations, we see it in their essays. And so we're looking for that sort of what we call intellectual vitality. Um, and it, it comes across often in the essays and in the recommendations. I will say I haven't looked or, or know really this year, but I, I want to pay attention to our rec shorter or we, we know the teachers are overworked, but they do have a lot of a good stories to tell about the students. But how are they engaging with material in this new way? What maybe creative structures have they come up with? So some will, some will not. And it's not an expectation that, you know, you've, you've solved all the problems or found the vaccine. But it's like, here's where you were in your context. How did you take advantage of, of limited resources in this difficult time? And again, I have to say, with the questions added to Common App and Coalition, it's really given students a platform to fill in that middle section to say, this is how I was impacted. And students are taking that seriously and answering very honestly. And we, we welcome that. And I, I like what you're saying here about the, that type of disclosure and reflection. We're living in, in historic times, uh, not just COVID, but the economic times, climate change, social justice, et cetera. From what you've seen of candidates so far, do you sense that collectively they recognize where they are? Uh, and if so, how are they responding? Don't mean to be cliche, but you just gave me chills. Uh, I, I'm just reflecting on how many students wrote about systemic racism, injustice, things that they've been feeling but couldn't articulate students who are like recognizing their privilege for the first time and didn't recognize they had privilege until now they're seeing it. I would say it was, I've never seen so much introspection or insight and reaction to what we're all seeing in the news and feeling. Students who never protested joining an organization, right? So it's not that they're all protesting necessarily, but they're impacted by it and they're, they're approaching it in different ways. So it may be through their literature, through their student newspaper, through the debate team or on the street. I'm in Seattle or I'm in Charlottesville and, I, and I, I've never gone to a protest, but I was there for the first time. Or, and this is really kind of cool, I voted for the first time, right? So again, that was early November, we were November 15th, so, or, or the excitement of volunteering for the first campaign on either side, right? So again, they are engaged, they are aware, they are thoughtful, and, and even in the early decision round, uh, we saw real evidence of that, and, and that was heartening to see. Again, we know it's there, it's what keeps me going, is, is the enthusiasm, creativity, and future potential of these students, and they haven't given up. They have, they have great hope and great desire. It's not that they're not hurting right now, they are. Just the, the, the pain is real, the experience is real, but they still maintain hope, and, and part of that is taking that next step and, and going to college. It's interesting because uh, at times I've, I've heard students step back from the opportunity to reflect openly in, in, in such ways. And they'll say, well, colleges don't want to see political statements. They don't want to see, you know, then talk about the, the taboo topic kind of thing. Are there taboo topics? I mean, should, should they just kind of be careful about talking about COVID or social justice? Yeah, I, I, it's a really good question because, again, I can't speak for all readers and, and you know, schools that are part-time readers versus, you know, trained professional staff. Again, it's going to vary by institution. But again, I can't think of anyone who doesn't recognize we're in a special moment here. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's less what you think than why you think and how it impacted you. 
right? So you've got to set aside and, and, and check your own bias, right? Again, we're admitting students to the college and to fit our mission and need, not our personal bias or view. Having said that, I work at a school I like and I like the mission. And so that, you know, you want to match your mission to your, your personal beliefs when you can. Mm -hmm. But I'm excited by our mission and how we lean into it and finding students that, that have that similar interest. We're less concerned with what side you're on, but how do you articulate that creatively and and what are your listening skills you can sense that you can see it sometimes in the essays in the recommendations and so directly to your question sometimes you should steer clear because you don't know who's going to read your application but it doesn't mean you should be touched by the moment as long as you can give evidence of that and talk about how it's impacted you that's okay right it's just you know what you don't want to do is well it's this way or the, or the highway necessarily or I, again, I, I can't learn, or I've, I've made up all my mind. I have nothing else to learn. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have nothing else to learn, then we don't have a lot to offer you. So again, <laughs> again it, it's sort of an awakening for many students. Others are like, finally, I, I've been living this my whole life. But they want it, They seek a community where they can have those open conversations, and they really are seeking community, which we're excited by. That's excellent. Let's take a step back again and, and just think about where you've been with your team over the last eight to 10 months. A lot of a lot of innovation born out of necessity. What do you think is going to survive? What do you think we're going to be, you'll be doing a year from now that you hadn't been doing before, but has come into your life because of COVID? I mean, Zoom is here to stay, right? So I think- For better or worse, right? For better or worse. And, and there are some positive things. Again, there's pros and cons with everything. But I will say one of the pros is we were able to visit many more rural places that we just couldn't get to physically. So rural outreach actually increased in the time of COVID. Mm -hmm. Again, we didn't always get a response, but there are places we've never visited because we couldn't get there geographically. It's not that we didn't have the, the budget, so to speak, but there's only 12 of us, right, on a small campus, and we divide up all 50 states and the rest of the world. So there are entire states we don't get to every year, not because we don't value the students from there, but it just, it takes time, effort, <laughs> energy, and money. And so we rotate the states and the schools. We don't want to visit the same places all at once but it allowed us to visit high schools. And I will tell you, the, the community-based organization counselors, the high school counselors were thrilled because you know they would say, no one comes. Mm -hmm. So instead of seeing two or three students, we'd see 30. It's because the whole class came, right? It's because, right. well, no one visits us and they all had time, right? They had the lunch hour, they were at home or and in some places, even in rural places, schools were in session. And so people could still chime in. What we were able to do internationally, so I, I joked, with my wife, I was supposed to be in London this fall, but you know, I went to a college fair and I was home by lunch. And so, you know, it's not that I won't hopefully return to the UK someday, but there were some efficiencies gained, just the ability to attend sessions that we couldn't in the past because of time, money, and, and um, distance. So definitely uh, virtual recruitment will continue. Enhanced email campaign and, and to some extent print campaign. Print is expensive, but you still wanna reach the parents in addition to the students. And so the print still reaches both students and parents, often when you know the face-to-face -face is just with students. Though again, families are welcome to attend tours and, and group sessions and, and things of that nature. So definitely the virtual pieces will continue. Now, I don't know, Jim, you mentioned something that uh, I'm not sure teenagers understand anymore. That's email. Email, right. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you finding that uh, there's a lot of outgoing email that's not re returned? Absolutely, there is, but, but enough, you know, when they get engaged and, and then like us. So it's, it, it's creepy when you're spamming them, right? But when they find the school they like and accept you, then, it's, then they want to receive it, right? So you, you want to be one of those schools they, they like either on social media or by email, but you're right, email is for old people. They tell us that all the time, but it's still the way 
most colleges reach students initially, but it's both. It's social media, it's email and print campaign. Sure. And, and those are all evolving. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap things up here with, with uh, another reflective opportunity. Let's suppose you, you're in a situation where you're able to talk with a family that is on the verge of college decisions and they're feeling very concerned, very uncertain bewildered in many ways about what's going on these days. I mean, maybe mom or dad or both had gone to college 30 years ago, or they have friends who'd gone, but, but everything looks so different right now uh, from the application process to testing to financial aid, et cetera. Are there maybe one or two questions that, that you would urge such families to be asking in this process, asking of colleges in particular? No, absolutely. And, and two that I talk about or think about uh, in thinking about this is community and affordability. So that's sort of if I had to narrow it down to two, and I'll, I'll talk about both. Sure. So I'll start with affordability. It is so hard to know if you apply where you're going to get in, and if you get in, can you afford it? And so it's a two-pronged process, right? One is finding the college, applying. Our hope is that you have many options to choose from in the spring. But then the second is, well, if you get into six schools that you can't afford, then you're not going to any of them. Mm -hmm. So I talk about sort of vertical versus horizontal lists. And this is from Lonnie at Syracuse. So I got that line from him, give him full credit, okay. where you might want some aspirational schools, which we may be in terms of our, our acceptance rate, some you feel pretty good about, and then schools just based on grades and, and scores or no scores where you feel pretty comfortable. And again, you can work with counselors to, to gauge that. Having said that, it's going to be really tough uh, as financial aid officers look at new family situations. In financial aid, they're looking at prior tax returns. It's called prior prior. Well, how do you look at prior prior in a COVID pandemic? Mm -hmm. And so what the school may decide that you can afford, maybe not immediately, but over a four-year span may be very different than what you think you can afford as a family. So you need that vertical list of financial options as well as reaches. Sometimes the most selective schools offer the most need-based aid, but if you're a family that, that doesn't have a lot of need, it can be a really expensive cost. So it's sort of the value proposition, and we still don't know moving forward. We hope we'll, we'll return to the new normal, but what is the value proposition for online learning versus in-person versus hybrid, and, and what is a family willing to pay? So you need to not just look at the sticker price, but also what is the, the, going to be the asking price of you. So I encourage them to use those net price calculators, which are mandated, federally mandated. They're on everyone's websites. Some are off the shelf products. Some are, are geared really to the college and, and give you a really good estimate. So I think affordability remains strong. But then the second one I would argue is community, uh, finding that fit. And I would argue that's even more difficult in a pandemic time. But again, I've been heartened by the connections prospective students have made with our students on campus and our faculty in intimate, though virtual settings, to where they can really get that sense because they're craving that sense of community, that sense of belonging, and that's not going away. So how does one do that during this time virtually? That, that remains a challenge, but taking those tours, and I will say I'm struggling with this as a parent. My son's a junior in high school, and so we've visited one college, and we still hope to, but not in anytime soon. And so I think we should revisit this next spring maybe and say, so how did it, how did it turn out or a year from now? But um, I think you can find that community through talking to juniors and seniors ahead of you that were a year or two ahead of you in the class. Talk about what experience was like pre-COVID and during COVID, because you always have a class or two ahead of you that are experiencing what you're about to enter. And you wanna push yourself to feel some discomfort. I don't mean discomfort in terms of pandemic discomfort. Don't you know, uh, attend a school that you can't afford, one where you're not gonna fit in, 
but they're gonna be more question marks. So we need to be comfortable with that discomfort moving forward and try to get as many questions as we can get answered, again, based on community and affordability. I like the way you answered that. And, and what I get from that too is that there's no shortcut for students to make good decisions, either on the cost and affordability side or on the community side. There's a, a certain amount of investment that each must make to finding that, that good fit and then uh, things work out well. Jim, this has been great. I, I really, I always enjoy talking with you about the process. I think we could go on forever, but uh, thanks for, for stealing away here for a few minutes to, to share with us your perspectives. I hope this has been useful to those who've listened in. But Jim, thanks so much again and have a great 2021. Thank you, Peter, appreciate it. Take care.